Hidden in Plain Sight captures stories of the Rainbow community in the Hepburn Shire. As well as the more well-known and recognised names, we also wanted to hear from everyday people. This includes those living, working, raising families and running businesses in the local community. Not everyone who identifies as belonging to the Rainbow community is visible. Hidden in plain sight. Who are the people that you would want to interview? Who are the people off the top of your head? Max. Max. Yes. Max runs a radio program in Dalesford. Mm. Um, fabulous, fabulous guy. I've known him for about 20 years. He is always the queen of Chill Out Parade. Yeah. He's, Max has got kidney issues mm. and he goes in for dialysis every, so his, his drag name is Dialysis. <laughs> Nothing like living your life. I know, and he's a beautiful human mm. and he would absolutely love your concept. Yeah, yeah. so he's there. Okay. Welcome, Max. Thank you, Mel. So good to be here, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this little entourage. Well, it's starting off very simple, but this is all about Rosie's. Rosie came to me, and I just love the concept, and I'm along for the ride, basically. <laughs> Rosie's got this beautiful idea, and it's about having a conversation. And so I welcome you to this table with Rosie and myself, and it's, it's just a talk. Yeah. Um, so you're just here for your good look. Absolutely not. That's why we're doing a podcast. <laughs> We've got the looks for you. We've all got the faces for radio. <laughs> but yeah, I guess we we open up conversations with how you're doing, where you're at at the moment. You've got so many things that you've got on you, your agenda when it comes to exactly what we're talking about here, hidden in plain sight. You've got your little hands in lots of different pieces of pie and stuff. So. What's our first question, I guess? Well, well, we start with the current and then go back. All right. Okay. okay. So tell us about what you get up to now. You're pretty active in the Rainbow community. So I, I do community. have a lot of fingers in a lot of pies around the Rainbow community as well as our own little community in Dalesford and Hepburn. Um, we'll get back to it later on, but after yeah. what I went through a few years ago, I'm just giving back to the community. You know, I feel that it's my job as an elder of the LGBTQI community to help as many people as I can. And if I can help one person with my story or whatever I'm talking about, or just help them in any way, that's my job done. So, but I just want to be out there and help as many people as possible with their journey, because everybody's got a journey, everybody's got a story, and we all got the right to tell our story, but we need confidence to do that. And I think a lot of people just don't have that confidence. Well, I guess back in my day, when I was young, there was the same sort of mental health issues and there was the same sort of issues going on, but it wasn't talked about as much. Mm-hmm. You know, and and yeah. we dealt with it in a different way. And I can remember one particular story when I was 12 uh, and from where we lived on the farm, there was a car accident on the corner probably 500 metres from our farm um, and there was a person decapitated in the car. There was three members of that family killed. But... We just dealt with it, you know, we, as a community we got together and everybody talked about it and everybody helped each other through it. And I think that's what's lacking today in a lot of ways, is that there isn't that community and there isn't the extended family that we had back then. Yeah. We lived on a farm and my grandparents owned another farm next door and dad, two uncles owned the other two farms. So it was, 
everybody was together, you know, and, and when yeah. you had dinners, grandma would cook and everybody would go there and eat and you'd all sit around a big table and eat. So I think that's something that's lacking these days is the, the family connection and the extended family connection especially because, you know, a lot of, a lot of children, a lot of young people sometimes don't know their cousins or their relatives no, yeah. in any way. So that's, that's something I think we as young people got through very well. Do you think with, um, when it comes to the rainbow community that there is an element of that in our history because there is the element of silence so people aren't themselves. So what then tends to happen is we create our own family. That's right. And yeah. just yeah. like I moved up when I was 22, <laughs> even though I'm, I'm, I'm not from a family that didn't accept or understand where I was, but I mm. found my immediate connections as yeah. soon as I landed mm. in Dalesford. And, and that's quite another thing that, you know, your family doesn't always have to be blood. Yeah. Your family can be who yeah. you choose. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time that's really, really important because they are the people who accept you for who you are. And if you're going through a journey of whatever it might be, then they're, they're your people to be with because they'll support you through everything and they'll be there for you. And that, that a lot of time is what it's all about. Mm. I was born on a dairy farm halfway between Warrnambool and Port Ferry, oh, a little okay. town called Coroit. So we had a farm out there and my grandparents owned the farm down the road. My dad's yep. brother owned the two farms around us. So when it came time to do things like the, the mowing of the grass and the hay cutting and the hay baling, we had one set of each implement. So we'd go around the four farms and everybody mm. just worked together. And that, that was what it was all about. And like I said, when, you know, if mum couldn't pick us up from school, we never got picked up from school in those days. Yeah, but we walked home in the same. I know. On I a know, horse, and four of us on the horse, and one was hanging on the tail, and all that sort of stuff. Snowing. <laughs> oh, I know, it was great. Was it Trenton? No, it was yeah. <laughs> And she just drove past with my. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, that was it. That was the extended family. So there was always someone. So if mum and dad weren't home, which was very rarely because mm. we had a dairy farm, but yeah. if they weren't home, you'd go to Nana's place or. Go next door. Go yeah. next door or whatever it was. Yeah. And no one locked any houses in those days, of course, because everybody just left everything open. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. it was a totally different lifestyle. Yeah. I was the second child, so there was three children. I had an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, I was born in 1949, and I knew from the age of 11 what who I wanted to be. I just knew. Who you wanted to be or who you were? Who I was and who I wanted to be, how I wanted to live my life. You were that okay was my with whole that. thing. I, I just accepted it. It was yeah. like, that's the way I am. Mm. Which but, is going back, I mean, well, that was, yeah. it's, it's knowing so, yourself at a very young age in a time where it, it wasn't discussed for okay. you to be that person. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, your auntie who was maybe a lesbian back in mm. those days, just lived with her companion. Lucky mm. you. Yeah, exactly. But I, I don't know that. See, yeah. I never, I never yeah. met those people. Or if you had a gay uncle, he was just pushed away somewhere and never to be seen again sort of thing. Yeah. So it was really bizarre. But like I said, I knew when I was 11 and I came out to my parents when I was 15 in 1964. We were, we were all at home, we'd had dinner and we were all just sitting around and I just said, look, there's something I want to tell you guys. And I had a boyfriend, so oh, I knew really? where I was going. And mum, mum and dad didn't know, but no. we lived uh, 15 miles from Port Ferry. So on a Saturday night, mum would bundle us three kids and her in the car and we'd go to the movies in yeah, Port Ferry. Was, so yeah. she would drop us off then she'd go around and visit friends and stay there and then when it was all over we'd walk home so we'd get out of the car and wait till she'd driven away mm. 
and then my sister's boyfriend had come out of the crowd, <laughs> and then my boyfriend had come out of the crowd, and we'd just go into the movies. So you had sister support? I had, I had family up. support. Yeah. Mum and Dad mm. said to me, yeah. if that's the way you want to live your life, that's fine by us, as long as you're safe and comfortable and happy. That's all we think about. 1964. 1964. They were, yeah, my family was very, very progressive. welcoming and progressive, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so my sister would go in and she'd sit down the front with her boyfriend. I'd sit up with that with my boyfriend. And when my brother sat, we'd have no idea. <laughs> How was your brother? <clears throat> yeah, he was fine with it all, too. I love no, that. No problems whatsoever with yeah. any of them. And then my sister left the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then I took him. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> Just joking, just joking. <laughs> Come on, hang on, you're blushing. There's a bit of truth to that. Happened in my, my family too. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> my, my boyfriend at the time was someone who, we were family friends, so that well, my family knew their family social, and all the rest of it. So it was a social yeah. thing. And Noel was his name. We uh, we used to go to the pictures on a Saturday night and then occasionally I'd stay over at his place or he'd come to our place and stay over and mum and dad knew nothing about what was going on in the... Because we were very fortunate in our family. We all had separate bedrooms. Oh, yeah. So my brother, my sister and I all had separate rooms. So what went on behind closed doors, nobody knew about. <laughs> so we'd, we'd walk home to where my mother was with her friends and my sister and her boyfriend hold hands and I'd hold hands with my boyfriend. And we'd just walk home and, yeah, it was all that sort of thing. So You were was... allowed to be you from the moment yeah, you knew. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful first story. Um, so we both went to school in Warrnambool. I went to one school, he went to the other school, so there was two separate schools. And his bus always left earlier than mine to go home to Port Ferry and ours came later. We used to write love notes to each other and have them in the palm of our hand. And when his bus came in, we'd just sort of shake hands or something and pass these notes to each other. And mum and nobody had any... My sister knew, because I told my sister very early on and she just kept it storm so... She was, she was, Sisters are good for that. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. exactly, yeah. So um, it was a pretty amazing time. Mm. Noel was a year older than me, so he got his licence early, and his father had this imported 1958 Chevrolet, which had, you know, some sort of 390-cubic-inch motor in it, no <laughs> seatbelts, and the bloody car was so wide, like we could hardly touch each other across the seats because it's like this enormous big car. And we used to go to Warrnambool in that on a Saturday night. Not one of our friends that we'd meet over there ever picked on us or said anything did or didn't. They, they, they all knew. Because we used to hold school. hands when we were I'm sitting not... at the hamburger shop after we'd been to the movie right. or something. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate no the way... Bullying. No bullying? No bullying? Oh, I love this. And I, I, I put it down to the fact that I've always been very open about who I am. So if someone says to me, you're a poof, yep, okay, tell me something and I don't know. Move on. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah, what's the next question? <laughs> so It's not the biggest offensive thing. No, but, you know, just I've always been very, I guess, confident, very and happy also, with who I am. Why be offended by something that isn't offensive? Well, that's right, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's your confidence coming out, and that, I'd like to say, comes from family. And oh, absolutely. Absolute love. That support, support of my family was from the whole family thing. family and people around you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's always been like that, and that's where I've been very, very fortunate in having that support. Uh, my sister ended up then getting married to the second boyfriend, and she had two children, and... The children used to call me Auntie, Uncle Auntie Max, so they knew all about my drag side. They used to take pictures to school and show, "This is my Auntie Max." So when did you start 
Or when did the drag side come out? When... Well, there's a story about that. When my sister was 13 and I was 12, we decided we played this little game. So we got dressed up and we put up a sheet in the in the corner of the paddock in the front of the house. And so we had this sheet and we were Tony and Terry, the two twins whose husbands were right at the wall. And we were keeping house at home. <laughs> and so we used to play this game constantly. <laughs> Where we had all the inside of the you know little yep. tent set up with tables and chairs and crockery and all sorts of things and yeah. Tony and Terry the Tony twins. and Terry the twins, yeah. <laughs> the terrible twins probably was a way to put it. But so that's when it first started, and then a few years without drag, and then I went to Melbourne, of course, and that you know. What drew you to Melbourne? In 1969, my father was asked to stand for Parliament, which he did. And he got elected in 1970 as a senator in Canberra. So at that stage, we had a family meeting and we decided, or mum and dad decided, they would lease the farm out to a share farmer. And so my sister was already married. Her husband was a, a relieving bank manager. So they went all over the state. So they were living, I think at the time, they were living in Coorup down in Gippsland. Yeah, yeah. My brother by that stage had already joined a biker gang. Yep. So he was off doing his thing. And so I said, I'll go to Melbourne. And Dad's youngest sister and her husband lived in in um, Elwood. So I went to stay with them. And that's, that was my introduction to Melbourne. And as big as Melbourne is, and as cruel as Melbourne can be, it's also like a little haven because yeah. it does protect you in a lot of ways as well. So that was, that was my foray into Melbourne. So that was not, late 1969, early 70. Were you working? Or were you... Well, I got a job straight away because, once again, confidence and you need work. So I went out selling encyclopedias door to door, I think, to start. And then carpet cleaning was the next one. Um, and then in those days, St Kilda Road, when you came from the city, so the junction wasn't there. All that, all that mm, wasn't I there. I the junction. I remember that. Also, and but... so when you were driving towards Frankston, the road split in two. So one going down and one coming up, and there was a hotel in the middle that came to a yep. point. And right behind the hotel was a car yard. And I waltzed in there one day and said, do you need someone to wash your cars? Which he did. So I got a job there. So I spent quite a few years working there. And then I left there and went and worked at a, um, a place in Malvern Road, Turret, called Crittenden's, which was like a supermarket. Mm. But the two brothers who owned it had a winery, had a vineyard down in... Red Hill, near near Frankston. So my very first job at this place was they would get the wine up in barrels and it was my job to decant it into bottles, cork it and put the labels on. And of course this is all exciting to me because a country boy and I didn't know any of this. And I remember the first day I wandered around the shop and there was things on the shelf like honeyed bees in glass jars and things like that which very wealthy people bought back in those days. That was what they'd have for entree for... It was very bizarre. An actual bee? Yeah, an actual bee in honey. And they would eat it. How bizarre. Oh, my oh, God. I know. Well, that that, that's, that's what happened to our bee population. They all ate it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was my first job there. And then I went on to become a delivery driver for this same place. So I got to take groceries out to very wealthy people who used to just call up. And there was one particular lady who would be baking or something and suddenly decide she needed half a pound of butter. So she would call up and I'd have to drive it to her. No oh matter gosh. the cost or anything like that, she was a very important client. Obviously, yes. Yeah. 
So yes, I got to drive around Turak delivering groceries to some very amazing houses and people. And one of those people was G.J. Coles' wife, Lady Coles, who started the Coles and she was the most beautiful person I'd ever met. Just no no servants, no nothing. She ran the house by herself. She did all her own cooking and invite you in for a cup of tea where the others would just take their stuff and close the door, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah off. Uh, so, that, so then I decided I'd move out of my auntie and uncle's place and I got a bed sit in Williams Road in Turak and it was $4 a week and she changed the sheets once a week on the bed as well. So. <laughs> oh, as part of the deal? That <laughs> was part of the deal, so $4 bucks oh, a week. Dollars. And were you going out much at the store? Did, did the boyfriend... Oh, no, that... Well, he, he, he actually... When he turned 18, his numbers came up in the Vietnam oh, draft. Oh, uh, so he so got taken off to uh, so, yeah, service, no. uh, but he trained as a chef. Oh. So when he went over to Vietnam, he was cook. He was a cook. Oh, yeah. So that, yeah, that was it. So he, he disappeared. So I went to Melbourne. There was a lot of um, gay nightclubs, mm. and it was really interesting that a lot of them were open and, and readily available. Like there was a couple in Turak Road, there was one on the corner of Turak Road and Chapel Street. But the very very first one I went to was, was yeah. called the Key Club, and that was in Collingwood. It was opened by a lady and her husband who were Melbourne people, and they went overseas on a holiday. And she saw all the gay nightclubs in Amsterdam and places like that. And she said to her husband, when I get back to Australia, I'm gonna open one of these. I mean, I don't know her that well, but she'd obviously had a lot of gay friends. And she decided that she wanted to help them. So she opened this place. Well, she just wanted more fun. Well, she just wanted more fun. So (laughs) you had to have a key to get in. So that was the, or or you, you know, you knocked on the door and the little latch slid open and you showed a membership pass. So that was the very first one. But then from then on, they started to get a bit more prolific. And they held a gay thing in there. And across the road was the old bakery on the opposite corner, skate, a gay skating rink in there where we used to go on a Friday night, roller, roller skating. God, imagine the bumps and bruises every queen got in those days, broken nail and you stuff for a month. <laughs> Locked you, wheels with someone oh, in real trouble. <laughs> and of course all the music back in those days was disco and yeah. amazing music, so it was so fun to dance with. But it was the 60s, it was liberation time Yeah, that's too, right, exactly. and it was yeah. Women to liberate. Oh, for, for everybody. Yeah, to everybody be free of easy, well. just yeah. be who you wanted to be in, in no uncertain terms, because even though it was illegal, everybody was just being themselves. And supporting each other. And supporting each other. That was the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It was it was a real family affair. So you felt safe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've never felt unsafe, because it's like, you know, I'm six foot, so you're not going to attack oh, me too yeah. much. That's the other thing. Um, yeah. And I was a lot different in those days. But, yeah, just... Yeah. Just felt safe, yeah. and because we all you hang out in a group, that's another thing. It was safety in numbers yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, so I true. made friends pretty readily, and there was six of us. So we used to do things together constantly. Oh. I, I can't remember. I don't know whether I don't think I've blocked anything out, but I can't remember ever being except getting called a poof a few times, and it's like yeah, whatever. Yeah. Stick a finger up, and yeah, whatever happens happens. But it was it was pretty amazing, um, and then. April 1970, I met my partner. So I was working in the city at um, the ACTU, used to have a store up the top of Elizabeth Street on the corner of Elizabeth and on the Trobe called Burke's, the ACTU store. And I was working up there in the shoe department for this beautiful German couple 
Mr. and Mrs. Shifton. And I worked for them for a couple of years. And I was in town on a Saturday morning going to work. And I went into a cafe to have something to drink. And I was sitting at a table and behind me was a, a bloke and his three women that he worked with, they were having a coffee as well. And he said something really funny like, I got knocked up at three o'clock in the morning or something, and me being me said, oh, that sounds like an interesting proposition. <laughs> and so, so when we left, we were outside, and he came out, and I said hi, and he said hi, and then he asked me to go to the drive-in on Saturday night. Uh, and I lived in Frankston, he, he lived in Cheltenham. So I went home to Frankston, I spent all afternoon pretty much yeah. up, up and, you know, white Your jeans on, can you imagine white jeans? So I'm on the train going back to Cheltenham with these white jeans on. Don't touch me, don't touch me, don't sit on that seat. Uh, and so, yeah, so we went to the pictures, went to the drive-in, and he told me he lived with his auntie, who wasn't really his auntie, but, you know, like an ally in the yeah. because he'd come from the country as well. And what I didn't realise was her son and daughter-in-law were also there for this weekend. So we all went to the drive-in, me and him in his car and the other the other three in their car. And when we got back, so this is a three-bedroom house, so the son and daughter in one room, the auntie's in the other room, and we in his room in a single bed. That was, you know, very exciting <laughs> trying to, trying to um, yes, have fun in that single yeah. bed and trying to be very quiet so no one else would hear. <laughs> But yeah, so that was that was on the Saturday. I went home on the Sunday morning and the following Saturday I moved in. Straight away it was a week and I knew that it was right. And so I moved back in with his auntie. And in 1972 we bought our first house together. Yeah, $16,500. Whereabouts? In Carnegie. Ah. Oh. So we bought a double brick 1940s. Yeah. House in Carnegie for sixteen thousand dollars. Close to Chadston. Close to Chadston, that's nice. right. Yes, yeah. and close to the railway station. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, Carnegie yeah. railway station. Yeah. So we lived, yeah, we lived together for thirty years, and he died a week before our thirtieth anniversary. Yeah, so he had a heart attack as well, but he was very naughty. He'd already had stents in and oh. that sort of thing, and then he came home and took up smoking straight away. He was one of those people. Yeah. yeah. But also, when he was younger, he'd worked down the mines in Yorkshire. So, so I think he'd already had the, the start of the weakness yeah. of the lungs and the tar and everything like that. So smoking and, and the family just smoked. Like his mother would smoke a pack a day. Yeah. His sister would do the same. So, yeah. And that was just, it was what life was in those yeah. days. You, when you went out somewhere, mm. drink in one hand, cigarette, cigarette in the other. And you'd talk your head off, but you'd do that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, so we moved in there in 1972. My younger brother was killed in 1975 in a motorbike accident. And he got life insurance. So we all got money out of that. He'd left, you know, my sister and myself and my mum and dad some money each. Uh, and so my partner and I then built another room on our house in Carnegie. And then we lived there from 72 to 81 and it was a constant hangout for all our friends. So people would just constantly come there for parties or just to get together or just to sit in gas bag or yeah. sit outside in the garden, whatever. It was a, a constant house, house. Yeah. yeah. And the little little lady who lived next door, we met her just after we moved in. 
and we gave her a key to the house and we'd come home from work and she'd been in the house and she'd put the veggies on the stove to cook and that sort of thing. So you get, oh, it, was just, it, was, it was that sort of, you know, and on the other side was a block of flats and there was three older women and an older man who lived in there and they became the same sort of thing and it was, it was an incredible time. It really yeah. was incredible. And then we sold that and moved to a house in Upway, Upper Fernkin oh, Gully. So we bought three quarters of an acre up there with the creek running through and this beautiful weatherboard house on the side of the Dandenongs. It yeah. was simply amazing. So we lived there until 86, so 81 to 86. And then he got, Ken got put out of work, so the company he was working for closed down. And we sat and had a chat and we decided we'd buy a milk bar. Sure. How'd you do? <laughs> Why wouldn't you? You um, wouldn't do that now for Well, you wouldn't do that for Christmas, right? But back in those days. That was a good business. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So we bought a milk bar in Sandringham, right opposite the Sandringham Hospital, right. and also across the road from the Bayside City Council offices. So you got captive market. So we got a captive market. So we opened this milk, we took over this milk bar, and I've got to say, it was one of the best times of my life. That constant contact with people, social. that constant social... But the other exciting thing for me was that I've always loved lollies. And so we had oh, probably a seven-foot glass counter <laughs> yeah. with two, two layers, yeah. and we filled everyone up with and lollies there you were. You ate your profits. For, a, you? for a cent and things like jars. that. Yeah, 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 jars, yeah, jars of lollies, lollies and everything. For 20 cents. I know, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. that, that, yeah. Brought, that brought the local kids because yeah. there was lollies, so after school. But also the other thing was the kids had come in and they talked to me about things they couldn't talk to their parents mm. about because they knew I wouldn't tell their parents. Yeah. But they just needed an ear. Anyway, we'd been there for two years and I'd made all these marvellous friends and the kids were just incredible. The parents were amazing. And then this particular day, the... Um, oh, that's right. They called us the boys at the milk bar. It was never Ken and Max. It was always it's the just boys. the boys. You yeah. can't see the boys. They'll fix it up. You know, yeah. They'll help out. And we were there one day and we just finished a lunchtime rush and the principal of the school came in and he said, hi, how are you, blah, 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 Chad. And I said, what would, you know, what would you like? And he said, well, actually, I'm here to present you with something. And they gave us a safe schools poster to put in the window for yeah. somewhere for the kids to go if they felt threatened or yeah. they felt unsafe to come into the milk bar and we would ring their parents. Really? So that was just... So I, I sat, special, oh. I can actually imagine, because the stigma... I know, that's that right, we'll exactly. hear about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we yes. had this we had this plaque. Yeah. yeah, it was just it was absolutely incredible. Really, really amazing and yeah, just well, you know, we sold it because it was time, but yeah. I would have kept it forever because it was just yeah. such a fun lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the older people first thing in the morning they're on your doorstep at six o'clock waiting for their newspaper, you know, because you've got to have the newspaper <laughs> first thing in the morning. Yeah. So I'd be down there at five thirty at the news agent picking up all the papers and bringing them back and then they'd be at the door. Are you open yet? Are you open yet? <laughs> So, so how, how many days were you open? You open seven days, days a week, including Christmas Day. I always opened Christmas Day because there was always people who forgot something. Things. Yeah, you know, they'd go to the supermarket the day before and they'd get everything except the cream, or something. they'd all yeah. Yeah. Always the custard. custard. Yeah, it's always yeah, the always custard. The custard. Yeah. Yeah, the cream. Uh, and in those days, Sandringham was a very old world place. There was a lot of older people lived there, and we found out pretty quickly that when there was a couple of women who lost their husbands. Very careless of them, but they lost them anyway. <laughs> uh, and, of course, in those days, they didn't know how to do anything. No. Like, the husband had done everything. Yeah. He, 
written the checks, he'd paid all the bills and all that sort of thing, and all of a sudden she's left alone. Yeah. How, I've never written a check. I've never paid for anything. Because he always did yeah. it. So then we started this little service where they could ring us up on a Monday and place their order for groceries, and I'd get, put them in the car and take them round to their houses, yeah. which was just another really, really special thing to be able to do for them. Yeah. So we made lots of friends with that as well, but it was a pretty, pretty incredible time. But opposite where we had the milk bar was a road called Royal Avenue, which was the place to live in Sandringham, you know. Anyway, I knew that someone fairly famous lived in that street, but I didn't know where. And one Sunday morning, someone opened the door and the bell went, so I went out into the shop to see who it was, and there was a guy standing at the milk fridge in jammers and a dressing gown and a pair of slippers. And he turned around, it was Bob Hawke. <laughs> and he was the person who lived in Royal Avenue. Yeah. And he used to come up in his dramas and dressing gown, walk up to get the milk and the paper, and then he'd stand there for an hour talking to people. Yeah. He, you know, he was really, a really, yeah. really down-to-earth, lovely, lovely man. And then Hazel, his first wife, would come in regularly and get milk and bread and stuff mm. like that. And, yeah. So that was, that was very exciting that he would come in. And of course, the shop would be full of people wanting to talk to him. Yeah. And other customers were trying to get in to get their milk and bread. <laughs> There's Bob standing there holding court. And his pyjamas. <laughs> and his pyjamas. <laughs> it was just amazing. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I, ha- I had a great aunt who I first met when I moved to Melbourne. My mother had told me to go and see auntie. Mm. So she became a very good staple in my life as well. So once a week I would go to her place and have dinner. And I would, you know, she, she liked things like, well, women in those days just cooked. Yeah. But every Thursday I used to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and I'd take some chicken over to her. Yeah. And that, that was that was our excitement. So the table would be laid with the old newspaper from yesterday. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, it was just it was yeah. wonderful. Anyway, Ken and I started doing that and then she got ill and they took her to hospital and amputated her leg from diabetes. Mm. But she strapped on that false leg and started walking again, did all that sort of thing, and then we decided we'd take her to live with us at the milk bar. So not only did we have the milk bar to run, but we had Auntie there as well. And she never, ever asked for anything. Just, you know, the district nurse used to come and dress her leg and shower and stuff like that. And then she died in 91. Myself and another cousin were the only people who got any money. Because she had no, she, she married in 1948 and her husband died in 1949. So no children. And she went out and became a, um, a four-lady at Brighton May's match factory. Oh, so okay. she worked there. <laughs> and heaven knows what sort of pay you would have got there. Yeah. But of course, in those days when Auntie Anne went to town, which she used to do once yeah. a week, she always went into the city. So the white gloves, the handbag, the shoes, the overcoat, everything, parasol. the parasol, everything to go into town. It was so wonderful. <laughs> so yeah, so we bought her to live with us. She died in 91. And then we decided it was time to get out of Melbourne. So we bought a place in Nathalia, which is the other side of Shepparton. So we bought a little art and craft and tea room. Because my partner was, he was born in Yorkshire and he was one of six children. The father was a mine worker, the mother just stayed at home and they lived in those two up, two down, you know, houses that are all joined together. 
and he learned very quickly, taught himself to cook, so he was an absolutely incredible cook, which I hated, with a passion, like hell. What a bonus. I know, what a, what a bonus. Yeah, you can stay. Yeah, you can stay, yeah. <laughs> only for your cooking. Yeah, that's okay, you can stay. Yeah, so we bought this place in Nathalia, and we moved in there, and once again, I never, ever crossed my mind that we might not be accepted. Why, why, why wouldn't we? We're two lovely people. And so that, when this is 1991? Yeah, yeah. So it never crosses my mind that my sexuality is going to play into this. It's just on me. Anyway, we moved in there and we opened up and the first week was really, really quiet. And we thought, oh, God, what have we done now? Uh, and then one of the ladies who lived in, in Nathalia, who was part of the CWA, she said, what are you boys doing on Tuesday night? And we said, oh, nothing. Why don't you come to bingo? <laughs> All right, we'll go to bingo. You can't beat them, John. I know, that's right. So we turn up at bingo. <laughs> And these ladies are on the table, and there was 12, uh, 10 of them, and they were all CWA. We'd known one of them because she'd been in the shop a couple of times. Anyway, we arrived there, and the, all these people in the room, and we look at this table and think, oh, there's two seats there. And like, oh, come here, boys, there's your seats. So every Tuesday night, no, you can't sit there, the boys are sitting there. That's, that's, <laughs> so we got in well with the older people in the yeah. community, and that just made a difference. Yeah. So they would then come for lunch or come for morning tea. And my partner was a great cook, so his scones always like six CWA inches high. Yes, yeah, yeah. they loved every minute of it. Yeah. And then we stayed there for four years and then came back to Melbourne and bought another milk bar. Talk about gluttonous and punishment. So we came back to Melbourne and bought the second milk bar in Brighton. Yeah. Very upmarket, darling. Whereabouts? <laughs> in Weir Street. You've got so much to talk so about. So once, once again, the private school kids. So once again, there was lollies. So we got the private school yeah, after kids school. in. After school, they'd come in for their... Yeah, yeah because in those days, they had $5 each or something, which was unheard of. Most kids only had 10 cents, but they had 5 So once again, it was just that amazing human interaction that really starts my fire and really gets me going. And it was, it was fantastic. We only lasted there three years, and then we decided to get out of that, only because the building was being sold. Yeah, and that was the 90s, that early was the 90s? 90, 91 to 94. Of course, by that stage, we'd sold houses and we mm. didn't have a house because you lived at the back of the milk bar. Yeah. Was, you know, there was always a residence attached. Uh, and one of my friends that I'd worked with earlier in life, his father and mother lived in Murrumbina and his mother had just died of cancer. So his father said, well, why don't you come and live in my house until you find somewhere to live? Mm -hmm which was amazing again. It would have been great because the father had a cook. That's right, exactly. Someone, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Because his, his wife, was that loved her job, she never, ever worked, his wife. Yeah. She just always stayed home and tended house, mm. and so every time he got home from work, there was a meal cooked at night time and stuff like that. And the common theme here is that you are not your sexuality. No, you're not. No. You, you know, this whole journey of this story, it's always not being about being No, it's not gay. about being gay. It's about being human. Just being a human being. Which is everything that you're talking mm. about. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> next, Max, tell us what happened next. So what happened next? We had some friends who lived in Pasco Vale, another gay couple who'd been mm. together for lots of years. They decided to go their separate ways. One of the partners came to live near where we lived in Murrumbina. And he was a handyman, so he used to get lots of jobs in different places. And one, one particular day, he, oh, we'd, we'd met each other somehow, and he said to me, I'm going out to Doncaster tomorrow to do a job for a fellow out there who wants some new cupboards or something. 
why don't you come for a drive? So I went for a drive. So we get to this house and he starts working and then I'm just sitting in the car and then I went and sat on the porch. And, and the guy who owned the place had got home from work. So we started chatting and he said, so what do you do? And I told a little bit about my story and I said, I, I do a little bit of ironing for other people. And he said, oh, really? You want to come into the house? So I go into the house and he had, he was a businessman, so he had 20 shirts. So because I set up his ironing board <laughs> and I ironed the whole 20 shirts. So the yeah. next morning he gets up and goes, Oh my God, look at all these shirts, they're all lined up and they're all ready to go. So he asked me if I wanted to work for him ironing his shirts, which I did. And then we did that for about a week because Alan was doing all the work on his wardrobe. And on the way home one night I said, I reckon we should start a little business. You can do handiwork mm -hmm. and I can do cleaning and ironing. So we decided to start this business. So we're gas bagging in the car about what we call a business. And we thought we'd call it absolutely fabulous. So the next day we go into the city to register it, mm. and it's already taken that name <laughs> by another cleaning business, which I thought was very rude. <laughs> I mean, we're queens and they're straight, that's not right. <laughs> so the guy behind the counter said, well, look, there's two of you, why don't you call it Two Fabulous, T-double-O Fabulous. Yeah. So that was the name we registered. Yeah, beautiful. So my email address is two fab at so people say oh my yes. god that's a great great email address it's like oh that was my business <laughs> there was a lot of gay magazines around in those yep. days and we put an ad in one of the gay magazines in the afternoon i rang them and i said this is the ad i want placed and how much is it and all the rest of it that night i had 14 phone calls because there was two gay boys who were advertising cleaning service in an area of Carnegie, Murrumbina, Bentley, yeah. St Kilda, all the areas where gay people lived in those days. Yeah. So yeah, so we, we had to take the ad out the next day because it's we just we were full. Stuff. We were full already. <laughs> it's a trust. Uh, and we st we started this up, and then Alan had a bit of money behind him, so he bought a van, um, and then we went halves in all the cleaning equipment like vacuum cleaners and stuff like that, and we started our little business. So it was really yeah. amazing and. Of course, because I ironed, that was a plus for most yeah, people because nice. nobody irons, and I still do it now. I still take in ironing for people because I love it. I don't. <laughs> I really, I really, really enjoy it. So we did that for. Well, no, that's right. We did it. We started in '95, and then Alan was very lonely and very bored, and blah blah blah, and he needed a partner, and so I took him to a, a gay sauna one night and he met this little Asian boy and fell instantly in love. And he said to me one day, he said, oh, Ivan doesn't like what I do, so he wants me to get a different job. And I said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll buy you out. Oh, that's good. So we did all that and we got the paperwork all organised and did all that sort of stuff. And then, and I carried the cleaning business on then, so I rang all the clients mm. and some of them we dropped off. Mm. Most of our clients were gay and then it slowly changed over to hetero people yeah. because once again, they they're just like the fact they're not so exactly. <laughs> they're not yeah, two queens are coming to clean, it's gonna be clean. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then, yeah, my partner died in 2000. Still in it's Melbourne then. Was, so I stayed there in Melbourne for three years after he died. And then in 2003, uh, a new friend I'd met down in Melbourne, we weren't sexual partners, we were just friends and we decided we had a talk about it and we decided to come up to chill out because I'd never been to Darcet. So yeah, so that was 2003 and we spent the weekend here. We rented a house in Musk 
We stayed there for the weekend. And on the way back, I said to him, I'm going to go and live there. Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Silly bitch, you're not going to live there, you're not going to do that. He said, what are you going to live there for? You don't know anybody? What are you going to do for work? I said, don't worry about it. It'll all work out. It'll be fine. So I went back to Melbourne on the sun, on Monday. I was back up in Darsford on Thursday looking at a house to rent. On the Friday, they rang me and said, I'd already started packing. I got home on, yeah, on, on Monday night. And this is your packing. first visit to Dale's? Yeah, first yeah. visit ever. Yeah. But it just had that feeling. It was right. It was that comfortable, safe, secure yeah. feeling. And the people were also delightful. Like I went into shops over that weekend and just felt like I was home. So, yeah, so Thursday, Friday, they rang me and said, the house is yours. And that weekend, we started moving. 2003, yeah. I moved to Darsford. And it's just been home ever since. It's just been absolutely amazing. So I rented a house in Hepburn, which was in a street called Park Avenue in Hepburn Springs. So I was on the high side, and on the low side there was three other houses. That was all that was in this entire street. Stephen Sawalski lived in one who was a gay guy. Gay twin. Gay twin, yeah. Ed lived in the middle one, so he lived in Melbourne, but he owned this house in Hepburn. And then Rob... Rob lived at the top one. So there was four houses and there was four gay guys lived in this one street. It was was simply amazing. (laughs) So I was still working in Melbourne at that stage. So I would go go down to Melbourne on Tuesday morning and work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and come home Thursday night and spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday in Dalesford. And then I got to know a couple of guys who had a booking agency and they asked me to join the chill-out committee that year. Mm. It was the first year I was there. And they also gave me an apartment block in Camp Street to be the cleaner of. So there was ten apartments in this, and I got eight of those. Yep. So in that was Camp Street. Yeah, in Camp Street of all places. <laughs> well, every town's got a Camp, Camp Street. Street yeah. <laughs> Meaning has changed. Yeah. It's run by gays. I know that's yeah. right. So I just told all my clients in Melbourne that I I yep. was finishing up, and but yeah, so that was it. That was a Dalesford. Mm. Um, so that was two thousand and three, and then in two thousand and my dad died of cancer so he was very worried that I didn't have a house to live in so he left me some money to buy a house which I did in Creswick bought a house in Creswick and I was only there so I bought that in 2007 then in 2008 I had total kidney failure completely out of the blue so I started dialysis in 2009 and by the way that's my alter ego drag name dialysis yes (laughs) dialysis (laughs) So yeah, I started all that and I'd been on dialysis from March to November and I had a regular blood test, which they do all the time when you're on dialysis because mm. they've got to keep records of Monitor. how your blood levels are. And I found out that my two heart valves were both leaking. The aortic valve and the mitral valve were both leaking. I didn't have any strange feelings, but that's, that's me. I'm odd. Like I've had all these illnesses and never felt anything until it's happened. So... The doctor decided to, oh, you've got to have open-heart surgery because you've got to have the valve replaced or maybe two valves. So down to Melbourne, (coughs) had x-rays and all sorts of things and scans, and they said, yeah, well, we're going to replace the aortic valve. So this is the surgeon man, and you've got to go and see him. So I went and saw him. I was 58 at the time, and he said, well, if you get a pig's valve in your heart, it's got to be changed every five years because they only last that long. Mm. Or you can get a metal one, which lasts a lifetime. But that means you're on blood thinners for the rest of your life because as your blood travels through the metal one, 
it can coagulate. Oh, okay. Whereas if you're on blood thinners, it lets the blood flow yeah. through. So I said, okay, whatever you think, right? Yeah. Um, and then in February, no, sorry, March 2010, my friend Gordon took me to Melbourne, dropped me off at the Alfred. Tuesday morning, I was in surgery. Tuesday lunchtime, the new valve was fitted. I was out in ICU in the afternoon. A week later, they said, you can go home. Everything's fine and you're working really well and blah, blah, blah. So he picks me up from the hospital and says, oh, you look a bit grey. And I said, oh, I don't know. Gordon's a paramedic. Yeah, mm. I've been in hospital. Of course I'm going to be grey. I didn't mm. get any sunshine. But yeah, so that was that. So anyway, Gordon picks me up and we we're on the way home and he dropped me off because when you've had a heart operation, you're not allowed to go home and live by yourself. Yeah. You've yeah. got to be with someone, even if you've got really good neighbours either side. No, you've got to be yeah, in the house yes. with someone. Mm. So I made arrangements to move into Ballarat with another friend. And so Gordon drops me off and we had a cup of tea. And he said, look, I've got to go. And I said, okay, off you go. And so he off he goes. And then about an hour later, I get a phone call from the Alfred. We forgot to check your x-ray. Well, the doctor forgot to check your x-ray before he left. And your left lung's partly collapsed. Can you come back to hospital? And I said, well, how do I do that? You told me I can't drive. I can't lift my arms above my chest. How do I get back to Melbourne? Oh, okay, we'll work on that. So... And Half an hour later, they called me, said, oh, you're going to Ballarat Base. So my friend then was home from work, so he drove me to Ballarat Base about 7 o'clock on the Tuesday night, and I only had 5% of my left lung still inflated. So into hospital, and the next morning they, you know, they cut you open between the fourth and fifth rib while you, and that expels the air, okay. so your lung immediately inflates itself because the air's gathering outside yeah. instead of inside. So that's all good. So back to the ward, some friends came in from Dalesford to visit and they left and all of a sudden I thought, oh God, I can't breathe. Press the buzzer, press the buzzer. The nurse comes in. What's wrong? I said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Oh, just calm down, settle down. She's going on thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't breathe, I can't settle down. So they wheeled me off to ICU, I got pneumonia. So five days in ICU with all these tubes and so I'm in this hospital bed and for some unknown reason, the doctor decided to change my sleeping medication and I had a reaction. So in the middle of the night, I wake up and rip all the tubes out of my body. So I've got blood spraying all over the body place. And in those days, there was one nurse per patient in the ICU. So this lovely young man came in and put me back into bed and the doctor came and thanked me all up again. And he sat there and held my hand the rest of the night. This nurse, and it was just absolutely amazing. So yeah, so that was another exciting time. So another, (laughs) another five days. I think you've got about five lives left. (laughs) (laughs) About four of them. Not the end of it. (laughs) So yeah, so that was all that, and then back because they did dialysis at the hospital while you're there. So they have in they they had a machine they wheeled to your room. So they did the dialysis thing. Then I'm back on dialysis in. 2010 and I spent another year there in Ballarat Base Hospital doing dialysis I said I was, Gordon was in one day and we were talking and I said look I really want to come back to Dalston because it's it's home and I want to be there and you know blah, blah, blah. so by this stage we'd sold the house in Creswick because I didn't want my sister dealing with in case I didn't make it through yeah. the operation who would have known could have carked them on the spot but Gordon said oh well I've just sold my house so I'll buy a unit and you can come back and live in that and pay me rent. Okay, that's fine, I'll do that. 
So he bought a unit and I went back to Dalesford to live. So I did my last 12 months of dialysis in Dalesford at the local hospital where I was able to walk to and from. And one little thing I've skipped over, in 1979, I started going to a gay disco in St Kilda at the Prince of Wales, which was was called Pokies. So a lesbian lady and her partner, a gay man, they started this up and it was Jan Hillier. So she was very, very into the gay community and LGBTI community, which is called the gay community back then. And she actually started a few of the newspapers around Melbourne as well. So her and her friend Ken Payne, who was the owner of another gay nightclub in St Kilda. So they started this thing and they had six transsexual women and six gay men. And every show was choreographed to the nth degree. (laughs) Costumes were made, backdrops were made. And we used to go there every Sunday night without fail. And that was a lot of the time, the people that you met on Sunday night, you never saw the rest of the week. You only saw them on Sunday night. And it was just amazing. So this main room had a stage with tables along the sides and tables up the front, a bar at the end. Then there was another room out the back with a piano player in who you'd go and stand around the piano and sing songs. And then there was another room where you could just go and chill with a jukebox. And if you didn't want to play music, you didn't have to do it. Yeah, the Prince of Wales. That's the Prince of Wales upstairs, yeah. And did you know the Prince of Wales in the 1920s was the most favourite honeymoon place in Australia? No. Because it was close to the Esplanade, it was close yeah. to the beach. So yeah, so 79 I started going there. And in 1982 I was there one night and I got a, a message over the intercom, could, could I go backstage? And I started being a dresser backstage and oh my god you were asked to go back to dress yeah to, oh. to dress the girls <laughs> and the guys for their show immaculate taste this oh, I know. yeah that's right it was just fascinating so because all the girls were on hormone replacement you know well, not replacement on hormones and all sorts of things so their drinks on a sunday night would be a carafe of white wine which was the house white which was probably like Bloody metho or something cask. back in the day. Yeah. Cask one. Two straws stuck together and put, it, put into this <laughs> this um, flagon and you'd take that backstage and they'd drink it. So I started there dressing and it was just phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely amazing job to do and they was just so much fun to be with. There was a few transitioned over the years. One one particular girl went or lady went to America to have it done and she went under anaesthetic over there and of course their drugs are so different to any of our drugs so she had all these weird and wonderful dreams which she then came back and turned into shows so her dreams and and the the guy she went to la with to get this operation he was an amazing choreographer so they came back and put these shows together and this is what ran so one of the shows was called um, electric dreams and it ran for six months, and we went every Sunday night and watched that show. The same really? show. The same show yeah. because we just loved being there. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the, and the people on stage were our little gods. You know, they they were amazing. They were dressed up and they were looking sparkly, and they, they had themselves. all sorts of things on and sang. Oh, they didn't sing. They obviously yeah. mine, but yeah, just amazing. But the funny thing was, it cost five dollars to get in. So you'd park in the car park upstairs or in the yeah. street or whatever. I've been in the car park. And you'd go downstairs. Yeah. And there was a 
a transsexual lesbian fire eater. It was the person who cooked the meals. So for $5, you got in and a meal. And quite often, it'd be stupid, simple things like mash, spanners and mash. Yeah. And that was all you needed. So yeah. you'd, you'd go and sit at your table and you'd eat your dinner and then you'd watch the floor show. Another friend and I started going there in drag. One New Year's Eve, we went there all dressed up. And they'd have an interval. So he lived across the road in one of the side streets. So we'd go over there and we'd watch the show and at an interval we'd walk up home to his place and get changed and come back in different yeah. outfits. <laughs> and we'd walk up Fitzroy Street. Like, you know, 9 o'clock, 9.30 at night, never, ever got picked on, never, ever got spat at, never mm. got anything. You know, That's heels funny. and all sorts of things. It mm. was just amazing. I still believe that we lived through the best of the times yeah. in the 70s and 80s. Even though we were totally illegal and not mm. supposed to be doing anything, it was just the best of times. You spoke about never feeling discrimination, never yeah. not, never being bullied, never... Never. Un, I can... Rec- I can relate to that feeling. Yeah. I, I was okay. Mm. I was, I, I don't know, it was just not that big a deal no. and for I think, me. Yeah, and I think if you're comfortable in your own skin, yeah, which is what we obviously are, but a lot of people aren't these days because they haven't got. But it's funny, the first place I was homosexual, like homophobic, yeah. was, was the pill. Really? And I was walking, oh, yeah, actually a lot of people, yeah. I was walking home from the SB. I lived at the junction. Right, yeah. And yeah. I was working at the SB. My brother worked at the Peel with his right. flat. Oh, sorry, not the Peel, the exchange. The exchange, the sorry, exchange. Yeah. I was working, yeah, I was working <laughs> at the SB. And we'd walk past the exchange and Chris and Marcus worked there. We'd always have a high, but it was yeah. whatever night it was. That was the night I got right. really abused. And okay, I was like, wow. I think I told him to go back to Ringwood and then got really upset when I came home with my flatmate. She goes, why are you upset? I'm like, because I'm from Ringwood. <laughs> so I'd, I'd throw myself <laughs> under a bus and everywhere I came from. <laughs> I was so upset. But anyway, yeah. That, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Once or twice in my life. Yeah. and that. It, yeah. So the place that was the safest, that's right. as soon as it became, like, I don't know, I think, what would you say? Would you say that, as it became less hidden, mm-hmm. therefore, you know, that... that well, it, it changed completely because there was because more... Because people started to talk. talk. Yeah, exactly. And once yeah. people started to talk, it started to become opinion. That's right. And while it, while it was hidden, yeah. people might have thought or guessed, but, but they, they never said never anything. That's right, exactly. That's, yeah. It really was a totally different time and, and mm-hmm. I think... Well, I think because it was hidden so much, we were out, we were out and open, yeah. but people didn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, I obviously also, it went on. Because that was pre-AIDS as well. Yeah, almost, yeah, wasn't yeah. It? And I mean, obviously it went yeah, on in a lot of a lot of gay it. beats and things yeah. like that. Well, we know that from Sydney mm. with the amount of people that were killed up there yeah. and thrown off mm. cliffs and stuff. And it would have gone on. Mm. But I think, yeah, I don't know. We we just we were just safe and comfortable and. Because we were such good friends, we did a lot of mucking around together and a lot of chatting mm. together. And I think when there's a group of you together, people are less likely to... Have a yeah, look, I can sit here for another five hours and tell you more stories. I but. know. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much we could even keep yeah. asking. But well, you could, yeah. I mean, look, I'm happy to come back any time and talk about it any time yeah. you want. I, I love we telling my do. story. Yeah, we might do. I love telling my story. And like I said to you before, if I can help one person with yeah. my story... Yeah then my job is done. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing. You've just, you've just got to be there for people. Because yeah. we've got your beautiful 
you know, <laughs> air from where you came from to where yep. you are. And the, I'm sure that, I think there's a part two in there. Things, <laughs> things that we're going to want to sit yeah, and go. Yeah. I really want to ask more about that. Yeah. We just wanted to let you yeah. go right. and keep yeah. talking. And I can talk forever. And thank you. That's all right. Yeah. And of course, the other thing on that is that all my family have now died, so I've got no one. I'm the last remaining member, which yeah. I didn't think I would ever be mm. with all I've been through. Yeah. I didn't think so I'd be the last one standing. Mm. My my army sister died last year, so she was the last one. So yeah. like just just amazing how mm. everyone just disappears. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I'm still here. Memories. To give people shit. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> to shoot. Oh, to yeah. create memories. Yeah, that's to, right, exactly. I overheard you saying before to someone with a young trans child mm. um, if, you know, if you could make one kid's one, journey one difference, yeah. safer or right, happier, yeah. or yeah. well, then you've done your job. That's and right. Yeah. Just mm. even listening to you today, <clears throat> you, you did that for me years well, ago yeah. uh, just yeah. by being a really positive influence in a life where I was new to the country yeah. and I was a security girl I you know, like, yeah, and all of a sudden you're in the country with no services and no ring up and get eggs no, delivered there's no them. water unless you fill the gas no, right, there's exactly. no fire unless you light it there's yeah. no gas unless you yeah, you know right. like it, and no mobile yeah, service and all the time and no electricity <laughs> and all this assistance from lots of people around me yeah. but Max I remember you from back then and Thank you and for being our first interview, but also thank you for being such an open book um, for us to be able to know where we can play with now. Yeah, well, that's right. What, do what, yeah, do what yeah. you want with it and then we can do part two later. But awesome. I'm happy with that. I right? think yes, we will. You. I'm certainly yeah. up for was, part two. I'm not done yeah. with you. <laughs> most yeah. well, most people say that. <laughs> we want to talk so more. much. That's all right. I was really, really happy. Thank you for inviting yeah. me. Yeah. It's good. Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you by us, Rosie Hill and Mel Thomas. It is produced in the Hepburn Shire, Jajawarong country, soon to be the land of the big rainbow. We thank you, our listeners, for listening. We would especially like to thank our guests who have agreed to be interviewed. It isn't something we take for granted, and we deeply appreciate their trust in us and bringing their story to you. We hope our conversations have inspired you but if it has also raised uncomfortable feelings or recalled difficult events in your own life, please reach out for support. Some ways available for help are Gay and Lesbian Switchboard, Rainbow Door, 1800 729 367. Also, SMS and email support are available. Lifeline, 131114 and Beyond Blue, 1300 224 636.